You know, I was looking through the hymn book, and uh, in the back of the hymn book, I don't know if you've ever uh, gotten bored with the preaching and looked back there, uh, but <laughs> I'm just kidding. You can laugh. You know, I, I, I don't mind you laughing. Um, but there's a topical index in the back of our hymn books. Now, don't, don't, not that I brought your attention to it. Don't go there now, uh, but sometimes look at that. Um, but I use that sometimes. I, I'm almost as prayerful about the songs we sing in the service as I am about, uh, about the message we preach. And um, this morning's message, for all that Jesus spoke about this topic, um, there is not one single song that's in our, that's in our hymn book that, that speaks of it. And I, I looked at that, you know, I was just curious, I wonder if that topic is in here, and I uh, went through A, B, C, D, F, G, H, and H isn't in there. There isn't anything on this particular topic for as much as Jesus spoke about it. I found that to be kind of curious. And I, I started to think then, because, you know, we've got a lot of hymns in this hymn book. I think there's, what, 600 and almost 700, 680 some or something like that. I can't remember. Um, but there's um, a bunch of hymns in this hymn book. But the thing is that we don't have all of them. So I started thinking, I wonder if there's other hymns. And so, you know, you don't have to know anything anymore. Don't mind the man behind the curtain. He's just fixing the camera. Um, but uh, you don't have to know anything anymore, right? What do, you, what do you do? You Google it. And so, you know, are there any hymns on this topic? And to my knowledge, and maybe you would know one, some of you have greater experience than I do, um, but there's not a single song upon this topic which Christ spoke so much about. And I heard, I've heard people say this. I don't know if it's true either. But Jesus spoke more on this topic than he did on any other topic. That he, that he spoke of, that's recorded in God's Word. Anybody want to guess what that topic is? Hell. Christ spoke more about hell, I've heard, and, and I, I know he had a lot to say about it. But for as much as Christ had to say about it, there's, I know there's songs that mention hell um, and things like that. Death is coming, hell is moving. Uh, Brethren, we have met to worship, I think, is the song, so it mentions hell. And uh, that's a subject, though, for as much as Christ spoke of it, very little is talked about it. And I understand why, because it's not a pleasant subject. And so when it comes to a message like this, it's almost like the preacher's asking the Lord, are you sure, Lord, that's where you want to go today? And so the Lord would have us to go to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16 and verses 19 through 31. In Luke chapter 16, starting in verse number 19, the Word of God tells us that Jesus is speaking here. Now, uh, we can go above this to see, I mean, Christ is speaking a lot in these passages of Scripture, but verse number 19 is one of those places of Luke 16. And Jesus said, There was a certain rich man <clears throat> which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. It came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, 
remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. Beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us to understand what it is that you that you desire to communicate to us through the words of Christ, which we have read this morning. Lord, I pray that you would your your word would do its work in our hearts and lives. Lord, I pray for anyone who is under the sound of my voice, whether that's right now or maybe later when they look up this video, uh, that uh, if they've not yet trusted in Christ as their Savior, they would consider this topic of hell and take it very seriously and realize that, that hell's a real place. And it is what you have described it is. And we ask God that you would help any under the sound of my voice to escape it through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll praise you for all that you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 16 is a portion of the recorded ministry of the Lord Jesus as he made his way from Jerusalem uh, to eventually be falsely accused, uh, subjected to a faux trial, given a fearsome beating, and delivered a felonious sentence which was normally reserved for the worst of criminals. And so uh, God used a physician by the name of Luke uh, to uh, record uh, the words of Christ here and uh, throughout uh, this book and also the book of Acts, but God used them to do that. Um, there are 22 parables of Christ altogether. 17 of them are not found in any of the other gospel accounts. So Luke really paid attention and was used of God to record uh, the parables of Christ as he gave them. Like I said, there's 17 parables in Luke that you'll not find in any other portion of Scripture. Now, what's a parable? A parable is a spiritual truth which is illustrated by a physical example. We might better know it today as an object lesson, you know, something that uh, somebody takes a physical example of something and illustrates, use it as, uses it as an illustration uh, for a spiritual truth. And in Luke chapter 16, uh, we're kind of jumping more or less into the middle of all this. And at the very beginning of the chapter, we have uh, the parable of the unjust steward. And we're not going to go into all that today. Uh, in verse number 18, uh, Jesus gives a word regarding uh, instruction about divorce. And then we come to our text where Jesus recounts the incident of the rich man and a poor man by the name of Lazarus. Now it's almost universally accepted that uh, what Jesus said here in these verses, Luke chapter 16, 19 through 31, that it is not uh, a fictitious story, that it's not a parable. Um, uh, it, it's a parable in that, like every other parable, it was drawn from a real life experience. I've read some that believe that these people knew 
who the rich man and who Lazarus were. Uh, Jesus used illustrations that would be familiar to his hearers, and so uh, so they would know exactly what he was talking about. And it's interesting to note that Jesus did use the name of one of the individuals in this parable, and that was something that he didn't do in any of the other parables that are recorded in Luke or any other gospel for that matter. Therefore, because of those reasons, many believe uh, that it would be reasonable to expect that the Lord Jesus would not have given the name of somebody who did not exist. And so for those reasons, many people, it's almost universally accepted, that this is not a fictitious story. It's not a parable in the same sense as the other parables. So coming from that perspective, I, I tend to, that, to agree with that. Uh, I don't think that Jesus would, would have used the name of somebody uh, that didn't exist. Um, I think it's very reasonable to expect that, uh, that this was a person that they could identify with. I think that the people he spoke to perhaps may have known uh, because of the detail that's given. They may have known the rich man or whatever the case might be. But let's approach this, uh, this story, this account, just like that this morning. And I'd like to point out, first of all, or show you the contrast of the men that are in this story. Look at verse number 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. There was a, a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that uh, the beggar died it was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Uh, and in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And so we have a contrast of men here. There's no two men that could be further apart in every way. One of these men, the rich man, represents the the top echelon in riches, and and the other one we find the lowest extreme of uh, of poverty, Lazarus the poor man. Uh, One, the Bible says, fared sumptuously every day, and the other depended on the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Uh, One had the means probably to afford the best medical care available. The other one, he only had dogs to lick his sores, you know. Uh, In a few words, our Lord graphically pictures the depth of contrast between these two men. Now, I would imagine, and we're going to take a little bit of license here and and imagine some things that the rich man uh, probably had a good name in town, while Lazarus, the beggar, was was more or less probably written off as a lost cause. And that's I, I'd say that because of what the Word of God tells us in the book of Proverbs, how that the poor is hated even of his own neighbor, you know. But the rich hath many friends. Uh, Proverbs 19.4 says, Wealth maketh many friends, but the poor is separated uh, from his neighbor. And so there's this contrast. When the beggar died, there was no funeral. Now, if if what happened to... Poor people 
happened to Lazarus, which we can suppose that it did because he was a poor man, uh, there was no funeral. They'd just take the body of that poor person and they'd throw it in the valley of Gehenna with the rest of the trash. This is what they did. There was no burial. Um, the rich man uh, also died. Now, that's the one similarity. That's not a contrast, but that was the one similarity between the rich man and the poor man. And, uh, and by the way, the Bible tells us that if the Lord should, uh, should tarry, uh, all of us have an appointment with death. It's, death. it's the one commonality that we can say that we all have, right? That and paying taxes, as they say. And uh, that we're all going to die. It's appointed unto man once to die. There's an expiration date somewhere on our bodies that is going to come to pass if the Lord should tarry his coming and we're not raptured out of here, that we're all going to die. We're all going to be separated uh, from, from time and enter into eternity. But the rich man, he, he died. And uh, that's the one similarity in this contrasting story. But, but here's the difference in that. The rich man had a proper burial. The rich man uh, had a proper burial. All the, all the people could see were the outward appearances of a rich man and a, and a poor man, a beggar. All they could see was the difference between abject poverty and extreme prosperity. But there was a hidden difference between these two men as well, one that people couldn't see. It was a stark difference in true riches. Jesus spoke of true riches when he said, For what is a man profited if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? In Mark chapter 8, there's something similar recorded. It's a, it's some, uh, Mark was recording the words of Christ when he wrote, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And, and the difference that we find in those two men, that contrast that nobody else could see was this difference of true riches. We'll see that in verse number 26, which describes for us really a central truth. Look at verse number 26. It says, and beside all this, uh, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. This is a conversation that, that the rich man is having uh, as he is being tormented in hell, and he's seeing Lazarus in paradise and in the comfort of Abraham's bosom. The Lord Jesus comes right through the door of death and telling this story, and he passes right on through as if it was nothing unusual, that he could tell this story, that he could see that, that great divide that nobody else could see. They say, well, how could Jesus do that? Was he just imagining things? Was he just supposing things? Was he taking artistic license? No. The reason Jesus was able to tell this story is because he's God. And he's not bound by time, he's not bound by space, and he's not bound by matter. You see, Jesus is God in the flesh. God became a man without ever ceasing to be God. Jesus is co-eternal, co-equal, and co-existent with God. It is impossible to be a Christian, by the way, apart from believing that Jesus is God in the flesh. And Jesus had all the attributes of God. He was omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, immutable, unchangeable. And yet he had that humanity that allowed him to be be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And so here the God-man looks into the portals of eternity and is able to see this exchange between the rich man and Abraham in paradise as he awaited the coming of, uh, of uh, the, sh the shed blood, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So he's not bound by time, space, or matter. There's no difference 
with God between time and eternity. Second uh, Peter 3.8 is, a, is a, a verse I'm sure you're familiar with. It says, one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. See, eternity means nothing to God. He is eternal. He, he just is. And so Christ was able to, uh, to give this truth or share this truth because of the fact that he's not bound by time, space, and matter. And here's, here's, the, here's the central truth that we find in this story, story, that we are all eternal beings. We're all eternal beings. You see, Lazarus died, but he went on, didn't he? But the rich man, he also died, but, but he went on too. And so what's the, what is the central truth that we can learn from this story that Christ told? And it is simply this, that we are all eternal beings. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus was speaking of those who were trusting in their ancestry or familial heritage or prayers or in sacraments or baptisms or good works. You could put anything there. When he said this, and these, those that are trusting in those things, shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. We're all eternal beings. And we're either going to spend eternity in the presence of God or in the absence of God. That's what it boils down to. And there's some that trust in, like I mentioned just a moment ago, their, their familial heritage. I think it's interesting as we look at this story, look at verse number 25, as, as the rich man spoke to Abraham, who is awaiting the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in a place called paradise. We don't have near enough time today to go into all that doctrine and talk about all that. We'll mention it more in just a few moments and try to explain it the best we can. But as he spoke with Abraham in paradise, Abraham said to, to the rich man, son. Did you see that? He said in verse number 25, but after the rich man said, have mercy on me, send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and cool my tongue. Verse 25, but Abraham said, son. There's a, there's a familial heritage that this rich man had. He was, a, he was a Jew. He was one of them that were given the oracles of God. And yet we find in this, in this account that he couldn't count on that familial heritage nor that religion. There was something missing in his life. And we see that. But, but the central truth we're talking about is the fact that that we're all eternal beings, and that every one of us is going to spend eternity somewhere. We'll spend eternity in the presence of God or in the absence of God. Now, the minute that the beggar stepped through the shadow of death, the angels became his pallbearers, and he was carried by them, the word of God says in verse number 22, into Abraham's bosom. Now, what can we see about Abraham's bosom right here in verse 25 it tells us that it is a place of comfort. Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And so there's the contrast of places there. There's a place of torment. There's a place that is a place of separation. But there's also a place of comfort. And it goes back to that idea of us all being eternal beings. And, and we're either going to spend eternity in the comfort of God's presence 
or we're going to spend eternity tormented in the absence of God's presence, you see. We begin to see these things being put together here. The place where the beggar went, Abraham's bosom, was an unseen world, a place of conscious rest and peace where the Old Testament believer would await the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is hard for us to really wrap our minds around um, because it's it's a difficult thing to, to, number one, quite frankly, to support with Scripture. But it's just we have to look at it with other Scripture and and use the wisdom that God gives to us. But when when Lazarus went into this, this place of comfort, he was with Father Abraham, and, and those were captives in this place that the Bible refers to as paradise. It was a compartment in which those that awaited the coming Messiah would wait for him, right? Because nobody could go into the presence of God until the satisfaction for the wrath of God was made. And so Old Testament believers, really up until the point that Jesus Christ shed his blood, died, was buried and rose again, and and offered that sacrifice to God, uh, and that the, the propitiation was made, the satisfaction was there, nobody could really go into the presence of God because the satisfaction for his wrath had not been made yet. That's really a difficult thing for us to think. We, we think, you know, presence of God, absence of God, one or the other, how did that all work? Well, I don't know, someday in heaven, I guess we can ask the right questions, we'll have all the details filled in for us. But that's that's basically, and we could go and support it with Scripture, and, and I have no problem with I, You know, I say it's difficult to support with Scripture. I think there's enough Scripture to support it, uh, to support the fact that that's the way that it was. Uh, there's, there is a passage of Scripture which speaks of Christ uh, going into the belly of the earth and leading captivity captive. What was he doing? He was going to paradise and saying, here I am. Let's go to the presence of God. I think about when Jesus met Mary in the uh, in the uh, place of the tomb, the garden there where the tomb was, and he said to Mary as, as she realized, oh, this is the Lord Jesus, she bowed down and said, Master, he said, Mary, don't touch me yet. When I think about the Old Testament priest, the high priest, how that he'd have to wash himself and nobody could touch him as he entered into the Holy of Holies. And Jesus said, I've not yet ascended to the Father. He'd not yet been there to say, Father, here it is the sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God. And so there's different things like that that we can put together and realize that that's, this is the way that it was. And so Lazarus is there in this unseen world, a place of conscious rest and peace where the Old Testament believer would await the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the, believer, the body of believers today, since the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, they don't go there any longer. They go directly into the presence of God because the satisfaction for the payment of sin has been made and God is satisfied and, and so they go immediately into the presence of God. Uh, they, their body goes into the grave, but their soul goes to be with Christ. Second Corinthians 5 eight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And you may have a, a loved one uh, that you're thinking of right now who had trusted in Christ as their Savior. And that's a great confidence and hope that we have. That that loved one who's trusted in Christ alone is their only hope of relationship with God, their body might be in a grave somewhere, moldering away. But I tell you what, their soul is in the presence of Christ. Right there, 
their mind, their emotion, their will. It's not a, it's not a sleep. It's not a soul sleep, as some say that it is. It's a conscious awareness that they are in the presence of God. And someday the Bible tells us the trump is going to sound and the dead in Christ shall rise. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air and somehow we'll be all be given a glorified body and everything will be made right and everything will be all right and everything's going to be just fine as we enter into the presence of God. And we'll get to see, here's what I find interesting, we'll get to meet this man, Lazarus the beggar. He's there right now. Do you know that? Think about that. That man, Lazarus, is right now in the presence of Christ, and someday we're going to get to meet him. But he's not going to look like a beggar. He's going to look, he's going to look just as good as that rich man looked. He's going to be clothed with righteousness. Wearing a white robe, you know, having put on Christ. The bodies of believers, if they should die today, they'll be absent from the body, but they'll be present with the Lord. Now, that's the poor man, Lazarus. The rich man had a very different experience. Look at verse 23. And in hell, the Bible says, he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. The rich man noticed that there was a separation. There were two compartments. We talked about that. Abraham's bosom, place of torment. Now, um, look, I, I got ahead of myself. Uh, Abraham's bosom has already been emptied because the work of Christ for salvation is complete. Uh, the place of torment is not... Now, we mentioned that those that were held captive down there in Abraham's bosom have now been delivered in the presence of God now. That's not so for the unbeliever. We said Lazarus is in the presence of God. The rich man is not. He's not there. As a matter of fact, he's, he is today where he was when this was written, when the story was told. The rich man was in a different place, and he's still there today. And he, along with everybody who has died and did not in their lifetime believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, is there until they'll be delivered up for the great white throne judgment. Would you take your Bible and turn to Revelation 20, please? Revelation 20. I want to show you this. That rich man is awaiting judgment day. Revelation 20 and verse number 11 says, and I'll wait just a second. And I saw a great white throne. Revelation 20:11, And him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which was the book of life. The dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and hell were delivered, um, delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever is not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so here this rich man is today awaiting that judgment. Death is, is a word that talks about separation. Biblical death is separation. It, it never means annihilation or extinction. When, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate the forbidden fruit, they did not physically die until many years later. However, the very day that they ate the fruit, ate that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were separated from God. 
Their spirit died that day. That th- remember we talked about that last week, how that their spirit died. That thing that allowed them to walk and worship their creator died. We, mankind, are separated from God by sin. In Isaiah 59 verse 2, the Bible says, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you. And if the Lord should come, uh, should tarry his coming, we're all going to die physically. Now, and when we die physically, we're separated from those who are living in time as we pass into eternity. And some of you, even recently, have experienced that separation that death brings, right? So often death is peripheral, but every once in a while, God allows it into, right, into our, right into our vision where we can see it up close and personal. And people are separated from us from time, and they go on into eternity. And so that's just a fact uh, that... Uh, if, if the Lord should tarry is coming, we will all uh, face that day. We're, we're separated uh, from, God, uh, from, from our loved ones. But then I want you to notice or remember how Revelation 20.14 references something called the second death. It's not the first death. It's not when somebody steps out of time and into eternity. But there's coming a day for the unbeliever, those that have not yet trusted in Christ or had, did not trust in Christ, to be separated from God for eternity. Now, I know what the Bible says about hell being a place of torment. I'll tell you, I think the greatest terror of hell, it's not the flames, it's not the worms, it's not the darkness, it's not the, the feeling of the sensation of falling into a bottomless pit. I think the greatest torment and terror of hell is separation from eternal God. Because even in life, the unbeliever has an attachment to God. God reigns on both the evil and the good. But there's coming a day which the Word of God speaks about that, and it's in Revelation chapter 20, that those that don't trust in Christ as their Savior are going to stand before their Creator. And their name, though it's written in the book of life, I mean, they lived on this earth, but they're judged according to their works, and they're judged to see whether or not their name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And when God finds when it's found that their name was not written in the Lamb's book of life, the Bible tells us in Revelation that their name is going to be blotted out of the book of life. That's not the believer, that's the unbeliever. And it will be as if they never even existed. That, that's the Bible describing this eternal separation from God. And to me, again, that is the greatest terror of hell. As a matter of fact, you know, I've mentioned this before, and I hope that it doesn't mess anybody up when I say it, but heaven is not the ultimate destination of the believer. It's the new heaven and the new earth that John spoke of in the book of Revelation. And hell is not the final destination of the unbeliever. It's the lake of fire. The Bible says in Revelation, we just read it, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. And so... It, yes, it's the place of torment that Jesus speaks of. It's, it's everything that the Bible says that it is. But, but beyond that, there is coming a point in time when even those who are already have left time and entered eternity will be eternally separated from God. They're in torment right now. That rich man is in torment right now. But that torment that the rich man and all those others that are in that place called hell, all that they're dealing with now pales in comparison to the day that they will once again stand before their Creator and be judged 
and be cast for eternity from the very presence of God. My friend, that is the greatest terror of hell, the lake of fire, that you'd be separated from God for eternity. Greatest the greatest comfort is to know that we'll be in God's presence for eternity. I, I know the Bible describes heaven too. It talks about streets of gold. I was reading it the other day. Matter of fact, I just finished up reading through the Bible this year. Did it in nine months this year. And it talked about the streets of gold. And as I read these chapters, it just gave me a sense of hope and relief knowing that all this mess is going to go away. And there'll be nothing more to worry about. We'll walk the streets of gold, a, a river, you know, a crystal river, all, all manner of fruit, and the beauty of the gates of pearl and, and all the wonderful sights to see in heaven. But I'm going to tell you the greatest glory of heaven, if the greatest terror of hell is separation of God, the greatest glory of heaven will be to be in his presence, just to be with him, just to see him, be like him, see him as he is. Oh, what a blessing that's going to be in contrast to what that rich man deals with and will deal with in time to come. See, when Lazarus died, he was ushered into a place of comfort and eventually he'll be ushered, he was ushered into the presence of God. And Lazarus is in the presence of God today. That's a contrast. Rich man died. He went to a place of torment, torment separated from God for eternity. And that's where he is today. It's too late. It's too late for him. It's too late for anybody who has died unbelieving. So, what's another central truth? Well, you can't judge a book by its cover. You see, all those that lived when these men lived looked at the rich man and thought, boy, he must have been blessed of God. Oh, man, look out. He's so prosperous and rich and has everything he needs. And Lazarus, boy, he must have done something wrong. He must have... He must have really made God angry because he didn't have anything. We can't correctly judge by the outward appearance. It's a matter of the heart. And when it comes down to eternity, whether we spend eternity in the presence of God or separated from God, it's a matter of the heart. For with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. My friend, it's not what you know up here. It's not even what you believe. You might look at the Word of God and say, I know what the Word of God says. I believe what the Word of God says. But have you planted that seed of faith, that mustard seed of faith, have you planted it in, by, by trust in the Word of God and say, you know, I don't understand it. I don't get it all. I can't explain it all. But if God said it, I believe it. And that's, all, that's what matters. If, if the Bible says that Jesus was God in the flesh, then I believe it. I can't explain it. I can't wrap my walnut-sized finite brain around an infinite God. But if, if that's what the Bible says, that God became a man without ever ceasing to be God, and in that man's body lived a sinless life, went to the cross, shed his blood, died, was buried, rose again bodily from the dead, and ascended to be seated at the right hand of the throne of God where he makes intercession for me at this very moment, if that's what the Word of God says, then I believe it. That's why I place my trust. I Listen, whether, whether you place your trust in the Word of God, what the Word of God says about the person of Christ and the finished work of Christ, or whether you place your faith and trust in something else, you're still putting your trust somewhere, right? I mean, you're putting your, your faith and trust in somebody's Word. You might, you might be listening to this message today and say, I don't think that hell is real. I don't think that Jesus really talked about hell all that often. 
I don't even know that there was a man named Jesus. There's very few people that deny that fact, but you might think that, and you're perfectly entitled uh, to think that way, but uh, somewhere along the line, you're putting your faith and trust in something. You're putting your faith and trust in, in somebody's word, whatever it is. For me, I, place, I, I choose to place my faith and trust in the word of God. I don't think there's another book. I could be wrong about this. But I don't think there's another book that has ever existed that is claimed to be the Word of God, the very inspired, God-breathed Word of God. I don't know that there's another book that's ever said that. I put my faith and trust here. I know what it says. I even agree with it. But it doesn't matter if I agree with it or not. I've got to place my trust right here. And if God has said it, then I believe it. And it's true. Faith is comprised of that knowledge, that agreement, and that trust. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. And this matter of, a, of the heart will determine where a person spends eternity, whether they spend eternity with Lazarus in the presence of God or whether they spend eternity separated from God with the rich man. We choose our final destination by whether or not we choose to believe in Christ alone. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That's what this book says. So we need Christ. We need Christ if we're going to be in God's presence. We need Christ because we're missing eternal life and righteousness. 1 John 5.11 says, This is the record that God hath given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Christ is the life and righteousness that we are missing at birth. We're sinners by nature, and we're sinners by practice. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. There's a payment that needs to be made for sin. The wages of sin is death. Remember we said death is separation, but it's not just talking about the physical death. It's talking about the second death that we find in the book of Revelation, where the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall be cast into the lake of fire, which the Bible says again is the second death where, where a soul who does not place their faith and trust in Christ alone as their only hope of a relationship with God and a home in His presence for eternity will be separated from God forever and forever and forever along with the rich man that Jesus spoke of in Luke chapter 16. God never intended for a human being to be cast into the lake of fire. Did you know that? I've had so many people say to me over the years of ministry, I, why would a loving God send anybody to hell? Well, the answer is simple. God doesn't send anybody to hell. But what he did send was his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God never intended for the human race to be cast into the lake of fire. Hell was made for the devil and his angels. We find that in Matthew 25:41, where Jesus said, Then shall he say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So, in verses 27 through 31, the rich man becomes the beggar. The beggar is now the rich man. The rich man had a concern from himself, for himself to begin with. Verse 24, he cried, Lazarus might dip his, tip his finger in water and cool his tongue, for he was tormented. When he found out that couldn't happen, 
the rich man begged Father Abraham to let Lazarus go back and tell his brethren, tell them that they don't want to come to this awful place, this place of torment. But it was too late. It was too late. You know, here's something to think about. If a lost person, if the lost people, that people have died without having trusted in Christ as their Savior, if they could come back, do you know what they would do for the remainder of their life? If a lost person was able to come back to life, come back to their family, come back into time, do you know what they would do for the rest of their life? They'd preach the gospel without ceasing. I've had the unusual privilege, for whatever reason, to preach hundreds of funerals, literally. Somebody got my name um, when we lived in Central Oregon. And uh, I, I'm, for those of you who don't know, I'm a veteran. Somebody got my name, and I have preached hundreds of veteran funerals, military funerals, hundreds, literally. And almost without exception, I didn't know any of them. I didn't know any of them. But I always preached the same message. Whenever I preached one of those veteran funerals, they came from all different backgrounds. Uh, The families would call upon me. I didn't insert myself into the situation. They would call me uh, to conduct a service. But the message I always preached was this. If this person... I'd name them by name. If they could come back today and tell you three things, here's what it would be. What you need, why you need it, and how to get it. And I'd preach the gospel. Why? Because every that's true. Every single person who steps out of time and into eternity, if they could come back, not just those that would come back from a Christless eternity, but those that would come back from the presence of God... If you could see what I saw, you know, they, they, they would preach the gospel incessantly. Every person that they would run across, they would tell of Christ and how they could spend eternity in comfort and not in torment separated from God. And a lot of people believe that multitudes would come to Christ if somebody returned from the dead to tell them what it was like. Isn't that, what the, isn't that what the rich man said? You know, if, if you just send Lazarus back, if you could just do some, perform some trick, some miracle, and Lazarus could come back from the dead, and he'd go back and tell people to escape this horrible torment and, and live in comfort for eternity, my brothers will listen to him. And Father Abraham said, no, they wouldn't. The one rose from the dead. They wouldn't be persuaded. They wouldn't believe Moses and the prophets. They wouldn't believe the word of God. They won't believe, won't be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. And by the way, it's almost a foreshadowing of what was to come, huh? Because Christ did rise from the dead. There are so many. I I know I've given this illustration before, but there are so many men, human beings, and such that that have tried to set out to disprove Christ and disprove the resurrection and disprove this and that. 
only to become Christians themselves. C.S. Lewis was one of them. You know? Uh, Lou Wallace. Uh, Lee Strobel, more more modern example, the case for Christ. So many. You know, do you know why essentially why that is? Because there are so many eyewitness accounts of a resurrected Christ. It's undeniable. Somebody has said, and I, I believe it to be true, there's no reason for this for this person to lie that I, I've, I've actually heard several people say it, but there's more proof that Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead than that Alexander the Great ever existed. There's more proof. Why would you, why would you spend your life, your eternal life, in the, in, in being separated from God? There's no reason for it. And, and perhaps we've stumbled on the reason why Christ spoke of hell so much. Because there's no reason to go there. Hell is a, is a I mean, we can, I don't even think Hollywood could do a service to describe what it's really like. There's no reason to go there. If you're not yet, yet trusted in Christ as your Savior, I, I hope that today would be the day you do that, you, that you just say, you know, I know what the Bible says, and I have enough faith to believe that it's true. Just, you know, I don't understand it all, but I have enough enough faith to believe that it's true. We'd be like, like the man whose son had a demon, and, and the Lord said, well, do you want me to make him whole? And the man said, I believe, but help my unbelief. I mean, there might be little pockets of unbelief, and we can't explain this and that and the other thing, and it doesn't all make sense. But if we could just find enough faith as a grain of the size of a mustard seed to say, you know what, I've got that much to believe that the Word of God is true, and that's where I place my trust, right there in that book. And if the Bible said Jesus is God, then that's it. Today, I'm, I'm placing my faith there. And if the Bible said that, that the work that Christ accomplished on the cross of Calvary by His shed blood and His death and His burial and His resurrection, if that's what satisfied the wrath of God, then that's where I put my trust. Why wouldn't you do that? Why would you risk spending eternity separated from a God Loves you. Gave himself for you. As your eyes are closed, the hymn of invitation will be played. Now, I don't know. I can't look upon your heart and say, you're saved, you're not saved. Only, only God knows, and only fact is only you know. Has there been a time in your life when you've trusted in Christ alone as your only hope of a relationship with God? I'm not talking about being born into the right family. I mean, this rich man, he was born into the right family. There's no indication that this rich man was an evil man. He was just a rich man. Abraham called him son. He had the right heritage. But he was trusting the wrong Savior. I'm not talking about some good work that you can do. I'm, I'm not talking about a sacrament or a prayer or, or some kind of religious observance or some kind of ordinance that you would keep. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about something that somebody else did for you. They imposed upon you perhaps when you were an infant or whatever the case might be, some blessing that they paid for you to have. No, I'm talking about 
placing your trust in Christ alone, knowing what the Bible says and agreeing with it, having enough faith and just to, just to take that mustard seed of faith and plant it in what God has said. Oh, you can be saved today. I hope that you will. If you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, I'm glad. We'll spend eternity together in the presence of a beggar named Lazarus. I can't wait. We need to meet that guy, won't it? But you know, here's what we need to take from this today. There's a hell. And we know about it. It's been described for us. We haven't had to visit. Why would we not yet then tell others what Christ told them? That there's a hell to be shunned and a heaven that can be gained. Well, may God help us to do that. Invitation's been given. You come as the Lord leads.